We're going to finish Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and as you can see, that takes us into chapter 4, verse 1. The, the, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not part of the original text, neither are the verse divisions. They were added um, after the invention of the printing press, when it became apparent that with tons and tons and tons of Bibles in people's hands, people needed to be able to quickly locate and navigate the text. The uh, chapters were added about a century, century and a half before. And so there are times, in fact, it's very frequent that you'll see a, a verse break in the middle of a sentence, which is also part of the, what the translators have chosen to do, but that's often because in the Greek text, it, or the Hebrew text, it breaks in the middle of a sentence. And you even see at times a, a chapter break in the middle of a, of, of a passage of thought. I can understand that when the chapter break happens, oh, uh, you know, 15 verses before the end of the passage. It's hard to imagine uh, why the, the person doing the chapter break would have placed it right here, but they did. And it, it's like the little A5 that you see on an old map. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a way of navigating Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would uh, help us, that you would open our eyes. I ask, Father, that your scripture would do what you have promised that it would do, that it would be the, the, the significant power that you have granted to us. We see in, in Hebrews chapter 4 that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and Lord, it lays us naked and exposed before you. It reveals our sin, it reveals our weakness, it reveals our need. If your scripture reveals those things, we don't need to be afraid of them. We simply need to repent of our sin and acknowledge our need and come to you for healing and for restoration and for the the granting of eternal life. And so, Lord, as we go into the text this morning, open our eyes and open our ears that we would know you better. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, beginning in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, so that we can catch the context, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have reason or have reason for confidence in the flesh also. (coughs) If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. When Grace and I left New Hampshire, we we came kind of straight back west through through uh, New Hampshire and Vermont and and upstate New York through Schenectady and Albany and up. Then we went up through Utica and and ended up in Niagara Falls. We uh, spent the better part of a day there, spent the night there, and spent a couple hours down at the falls themselves, went back, and then that evening I went back and, and took pictures as the, the sun was going down and stood there next to the river with my camera on a tripod, and every three or four minutes as, the, as it got dimmer, I, I took pictures and got some, got some nice shots. And if, if you've never been to Niagara Falls, if you've never stood that close to a waterfall, and, and you are that close to the fall, it's hypnotic to stand there for an hour, hour and a half in one spot and see the water rushing by. And I did a little bit of, of research, as, as I'm prone to do. You, you know, I'm, I think, you, hopefully you all know, that, that uh, there are five great lakes uh, Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario, and and uh, Lake Superior and Lake Michigan feed into Lake Huron, and Lake Huron feeds into Lake Erie, and then Lake Erie feeds into the Niagara River, and then the Niagara River ultimately feeds into Lake Ontario, which feeds up into some river in Canada, and it's in Canada, so I don't care, and then that goes to that goes out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, on average, 770,000 gallons of water pour over the edge of Niagara Falls every second. That's over 3,000 tons of water 
That's 1,200 plus Ford F-150 pickup trucks every second. And as the water comes over the edge, it's moving at 20 miles an hour. And you have to know that if if you took a a stick, if you took a a ball, if you took something that would float and and you threw it out in that water, it's it's going. It's going over the edge. There's no holding it back. And the point of that, that is this, there are people who, who believe that life in Christ, that the Christian life, that spiritual life is, is just like that. You, you just have to let go and let God. You just have to jump into his river and let him carry you along. And the, the flow and the momentum of it and the speed of it, it'll, it'll just, just carry you on. You just kind of bob in the water. And that's not an idea that's ever found in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, is, he writes these words, is under house arrest in the city of Rome. He is writing to Christians in the city of Philippi, which is about 800 miles to the east in, in uh, what we would today consider to be Greece or southern Macedonia, the top of the Aegean Sea. And he's... He's been a Christian for 30 or 35 years at this point. And in the first part of the chapter, he, he, he goes through all of the things that were gained to him. And it's really interesting, especially given our time, as people are so focused in our time on their identity, their identity, what they identify as or what their identity is. Paul says, look, here's my identity. I'm a circumcised Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. That's my identity and he says, that's gain to me, but it's really loss. And he talks about his achievements, uh, his, his uh, standing in the law as a Pharisee, his zeal as a persecutor of the church, his personal righteousness. And he says that all of that gain, all of that is loss. All of that is a disadvantage. It all counts against me. And what I do, he says, is I press on there in verse 12. And he says it again in verse 14. I press on. Now, isn't God at work? Well, of course he's at work. We, we saw that in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Paul, says, God, uh, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work. We saw in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work, but, but as we see in those two verses, we are to be active. We're never called simply to jump in the river and float and let it take us where we think it will let us go. Now, the, the ultimate goal, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, is the resurrection from the dead. That, that's the goal. And Paul says, I have taken all of those things that were advantages to me, and, and in the earlier part of the chapter, he says, what was gain I have counted as loss. In this latter part of the chapter, he says in verse 13, I am forgetting what lies behind, and I am pressing on. I am striving forward. I am pushing forward. The idea there is being in active pursuit of something. It's actually the word that's, that's sometimes translated as persecuted. 
It's not the word used earlier in the chapter, but it could mean persecuted. It means to have an object in mind and to chase it down, to go after it in a strenuous way. And Paul says, look, I haven't obtained this yet. I have not yet been resurrected. I have not yet been made like Christ. He, He doesn't hide that. He doesn't conceal that. He makes it clear that he has not yet arrived, but he also says that he is going to arrive without question. Now, the English Standard Version, for the most part, I like it as a, as a translation, but it loses something in verse 12. In verse 12 in the English Standard Version, Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And, and that kind of separates those two ideas. I am going to make that my own because Jesus made me his own. But the, the sense of the original text and what you would find in the New American Standard, the King James, the New King James, I think the NIV, just about every tra- other translation is, I am trying, I am pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Jesus took hold of me for a purpose. And that purpose was so that I could take hold of that. And there's a beautiful, tender intimacy in this picture that Paul describes. Several weeks ago, Lucy and I were uh, walking over to my mom's house. We were going over to get, uh, to get M&M's. It's about half a mile. And uh, in order to get there, we've got to cross 13th Street, which of course is four lanes and is, is pretty busy. So we, we went out our front door and out our, out our yard of the sidewalk and down toward 13th Street. And she's walking by herself. But as we got close to 13th Street, I reached out and I took her by the hand. And I said, now you wait, you wait. As Paul says, we wait for a Savior. And when, when the traffic had cleared, I said, let's go. And we beelined for the other side, and I didn't let her go. She's just six. I don't hold Grace's hand when we walk across the street anymore, but there was a time when, when we did. And I gave Lucy three things. I gave her direction because at six, 80 feet is a long way to cross. And they can start wandering because they get distracted. So I gave her direction. And I gave her protection because I'm twice her height, much easier to see. And if need be, I could pick her up and carry her. And I gave her strength to get through because it's weird. They run all the time. They get up and they're running. Their feet are in motion before their eyes are open. And they, they're running until they go to sleep at night. But for some reason, when you want them to walk from here to there, halfway across, I'm tired. And so I gave her my strength. She had the direction she needed. She had the protection she needed. And she had the strength she needed. Why? Because I took her by the hand. And, and by the way, that's the operative thing here. didn't matter if she held on to me. I was holding on to her. So Paul says, Jesus has taken hold of me so that I can take hold of that. And he does what I did for Lucy. He gives us his direction in the word. He gives us his protection with his name and his presence. And he gives us his strength through the spirit so that we get there. So Paul says, there's no question. I have not arrived there yet, but I will. That's not in doubt. And because Jesus has taken hold of him, he says in verse 13, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to unpack that last phrase in a moment, but I want to point out a couple things. First of all, I want to point out to you that Paul doesn't say, having forgotten what lies behind, but forgetting what lies behind. He doesn't say, when I got saved on the Damascus Road, I forgot everything that, lied, that, that lay behind me, and I've done nothing but look forward. He says, I have to get up every single day and forget the things I thought were advantages. There's actually an excellent example of that. In the book of Galatians, as Paul is explaining his, his understanding of the gospel and his comprehension of the gospel, he talks about a point early in the life in the church when the headquarters of the church had kind of moved to Antioch because of persecution. Antioch would be uh, up, the, up the Mediterranean coast toward Turkey. Right, Modern-day Antioch is right at the border between Turkey and Syria. And he said, we're all just there eating dinner and having a great time. And Peter's there. But then some Judaizers from James came. Now, Jews are not allowed to eat with Gentiles. And Paul says, so Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because of the Jews. So Paul says, I stood up and publicly rebuked him what he did was public and so i publicly rebuked him and said blah 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 and you can read it in galatians chapter two the point is the point is this at that moment when those men came and paul looked at what peter was doing paul had to look at his background and say i need to remember to forget that i need to remember to forget what i thought was an advantage or it will continue to hold me back. And so an example of Paul forgetting what had been an advantage so that he could press on is found there in Galatians 2. And he says to Peter, in essence, you should also be forgetting what lies behind so that you can press forward to what lies ahead. And we've got false advantages that all of us count on. Some people in our time count on baptism. Nothing wrong with baptism, but it's a false advantage if you think it will get you to heaven. So leave it behind. Uh, Being good, I'll be good, I'll try to be good, I have good intentions. Leave it behind, it's not going to get you to heaven. A strong religious history, leave it behind, it's not going to help. Giving money to the church is great. If you're doing it, keep doing it, please. But it cannot get you to heaven. You may as well leave it behind. In terms of spiritual advantage, it can't help. They're false advantages. They're not bad, but they can't get you to the finish line. Only Jesus can do that. And so we have to let go of those things. Now Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a long, kind of a cumbersome sentence, but if we just slow it down, it makes perfect sense. It's actually very simple. He says, I press on for the goal, the objective, the finish line. He's using a race metaphor. I press on for the goal. Why? Because when I cross the goal, I get the prize. What's the prize? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, or as he calls it in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus has taken hold of him. Jesus has taken hold of me. He's taken hold of every single one of us who have put our faith in him so that we reach the finish line, that we reach the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul is saying here. And so we can forget the things that that we thought were once advantages. We We can leave what lies behind behind and we can press on. But that's hard. That's hard. There's a logical fallacy called the sunk cost fallacy. And it, and it, it kind of works like this. Dennis decides that he's going to buy a, a new pickup truck. And he just wants a little used pickup truck for carrying stuff and running around town. And he finds a really good deal. He finds one for 1000 bucks, and he buys it. And, and over the first week or two, it needs a little bit of work. So he puts another $1,000 into it. And it's doing fine. And about three months later, he finds out that the transmission is completely shot. And he goes and he prices a new transmission and all the labor to put it in, and it's going to cost him $6,000. Wisdom says, I should stop now. The sunk cost fallacy says, I've already invested too much. I can't stop now. And it actually encourages us to pour good money after bad. It's why Las Vegas works. It's why gambling works. Some of the unhappiest people on the face of the earth are people who win the lottery. And it's very common for people who win huge lotteries to be broke two, three, four years later because they take all of that money and they put it back in the lottery. Well, as we're thinking about the things that were gained to us, which is Paul's language in in uh, um, in, uh, in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. As we think about those things that lie behind, as he puts it in verse 13, the more that we've invested, the harder it is to do. And you meet people who are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old who all their life have been told to count on baptism. And you tell them and you show them from Scripture that baptism can't help them, but after 70 years of being told that it can, they can't let it go. It's really hard. It's really hard. What's Paul's attitude towards that? Which means what's the Lord's attitude because this is inspired Scripture. Verse 15, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. The New American Standard there says perfect. The sense of the word is mature, complete. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This isn't childish thinking. This isn't even young person thinking. If, if you're 15, 20, 25 years old and your whole life is, is out in front of you, the last thing you want to think of is setting, setting what's in front of you behind you. You haven't even gotten there yet. It's hard. And so he says, look, those of you who are mature need to be thinking this way. And if that's really, really tough, if that's impossible for you, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. This is a practical lesson of Scripture. 
This, this is not a, a doctrinal point that you say, yeah, okay, I understand God is one God, but three persons, one in essence. They're all co-equal in nature and in glory, but there are three distinct persons and always have been. The Trinity, yeah, I understand that. Okay, I, I can kind of grasp those ideas in my head and hang on to them. Now I can go on. This is a practical lesson of learning how to do life in Christ. And it, it takes it takes time and it takes the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to teach us what isn't worth carrying any longer. Now, Paul doesn't make any, Paul doesn't say it's a matter of opinion. It might be true for you and not true for me. He says mature Christianity thinks this way, but he doesn't force us into a false maturity of pretense. He simply says, if your attitude is different, the Lord will show you. The Lord will show you. The important thing he says in verse 16 is to hold true to what we have attained. To hold true to the gospel of Christ. To hold true to the sufficiency of Jesus as Savior. And if any of those things in our past, if any of those things that we carry interfere with our faith in the gospel, with our faith in Jesus, then we must drop them. That's what salvation means. It means repenting from sin. We turn away from sin in order to, to turn to Christ. But Linda and I have found in, in our, our decades of being Christians that the things that we were kind of proud of when we were first saved are things to be ashamed of later. That's just growth. That's just growth. Now, before we go on, I, I just want to make this point. Jesus is not going to fail. Paul is banking everything on what Jesus has done. He's given up his identity and he's given up his accomplishments. And he said, my goal is the resurrection from the dead, but I can't get there. Jesus has taken a hold of me and I have to trust him to get me there. So can I actually trust him to get me there? I want to read this to you from John chapter 6. It's verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He actually uses the strongest possible negation there that the Greek language allows. Never, ever. I will never, ever cast them out. He can't say it more strongly than he does. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus perfectly accomplished that will in his life and ministry on earth. And he, continued, he continues to perfectly accomplish the Father's will. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. Bring it to this resurrection from the dead that Paul's talking about. That's the will of God. Jesus says it's the will of God that I bring you as a Christian all the way to the resurrection. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been born again, you've received that gift of faith and that gift of life, and you have trusted in Christ, the only way for you to not attain the resurrection is for Jesus to fail to obey the Father. And he doesn't fail. Jesus will not fail. 
You can write that next to this verse. You can write it across the top of the page. You can write it in the front of, of your Bible. I don't recommend this, but you can have it tattooed on your forehead backwards so you can see it when you look in a mirror. Jesus will not fail. You'll fail. I will fail. He will never fail. And because he has taken hold of us and he will not fail, we press on. We're held back by all that stuff. If you remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. But we don't actually know for sure. But I think he wrote Hebrews. And this is actually a parallel passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's lay behind what lies in our past. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's a parallel. What lies behind needs to be forgotten on a constant basis. It, it, it hangs on to us. It's like those little cords and little things that we trip on when we get up in the middle of the night. We get tangled up in something and it pulls back on us. And Jesus says, the scripture says, you, you need to take what lies behind and let it go. Lay aside the sin, lay aside the things that encumber you, and press on toward the goal. Why? Because there's no doubt that you'll get there. Because Jesus Christ has taken hold of our hand. And because he's taken hold of our hand, he gives us his direction, his protection, and his strength. We will get there, not because of us, but because of what he has done. Now, as we do that, it always helps to have examples. And so he says in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There are good examples and bad examples. It's really important we look for good examples. That's one of the reasons I try to go to this conference in, in New Hampshire every year. Because I hear examples of the best preaching in the country. Truly. The, the, the soundest theology, the best communicators come to this little, little church and a little place, about 50 or 60 guys. Not a huge, massive conference with three or four or 5,000. Justin has been to a couple of those big Together for the Gospel. Have you ever been to Shepherd's Conference? You've been together for the Gospel, though. You and 5,000, your closest friends. 10,000? See, this, this is a conference with the same kinds of speakers, the same speakers, but 50 guys. And I didn't this year, but two years ago, I spent 20 minutes with Herschel York. You can't get close to Herschel York at one of the big conferences because there's just too many guys. And so I go to be encouraged. I go to be exhorted. We need to look for good examples. Paul says, you can imitate me. I'm here as an example for you. And he says, also look for those who walk according to the example that you have in us, those who are mature in their faith, who are further down the road. You can say there's somebody who puts their trust in the Lord, they love his word, they're seeking holiness, their eyes are on the finish line. 
and they're, they're three or four or five years down the road from me, and they can tell me what the road is like getting there. And so we can, we can look for those good examples and follow them. And at the same time, we can be a good example because there are people who are coming behind us and they need to know what the road is like. They need to know what the, what the obstacles are like. They need to know what, the, the th- what kinds of things the culture is going to do. And so Paul says, look, you've got Timothy, you've got Epaphroditus. He's already used them in the passage. There's also bad examples. And this is tragic. Verse 18, he says, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I'm a good example, he says. Look for those who are good examples, he says. But many are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that, what does that mean? Well, some hate the very idea that their sins are bad enough that only the death of someone can save them. There, there's a, a, a theological trend, a theological idea that's been out there for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, promoted by a man named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is an Anglican minister in, in England. He calls it the new perspective on Paul. And basically, everybody's going to be okay, and all of this gospel stuff is just to encourage us while we go through life, but everybody's basically going to be okay. And N.T. Wright says the idea of the atonement, the idea that a Savior had to die for you, is nothing more than cosmic child abuse. Well, yeah, but we can't talk right now. But yeah, but cosmic child abuse. So you, we're just going to rip those pages out of Scripture that says Jesus died in our place, that he bore our sins on the cross. We're just going to ignore that. Why? Because he just can't stand the idea of thinking that somebody had to die, that he was that bad. He's an enemy of the cross of Christ. There are others who are enemies of the cross of Christ who hate the idea that they can't atone for their own sins, that somebody else needed to die. I'm good enough. I can try. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody's help. The Bible says you can't do it yourself. The Bible says if you do it yourself, you'll go to hell. You can't do it yourself. And you don't need to do it yourself. It's the silliest thing anybody's ever tried to do. It's impossible and it's unnecessary. And others, of course, within the, the prosperity movement, the health and wealth movement... Uh, are enemies of the cross of Christ because they believe that the, the point of life in Christ is not about the resurrection in the future, but healing and wealth and pleasure today. You can have your best life now. You can't have your best life now. If you have your best life now, you're going to hell. Just think about it. If you get your best life now, eternity sucks. We don't want our best life now. We want our best, best life to come when it, when it comes with perfection and when it comes and can't be taken away from us. But there are those within that movement who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Not every person who follows them because they don't understand, but many of the promoters are. So it shouldn't even need to be said that these are not people that we ought to make examples for our lives. We should pity them. We should never envy them. First Timothy 3 says that we should avoid them. They have a, an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. 
We need to look for good examples. We need to avoid bad examples. We need to put our trust in Jesus Christ and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we are going home. We are going home. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Where your citizenship is, is where your home is. Uh, several years ago, Linda and I had the opportunity to, to uh, one year go to South Africa and Malawi and Zambia and London and the next year to go to China to visit Penny and Bill and Jane Gear and, and uh, meet their team and, ex- and, and see their world. We couldn't experience their life, but we could see their world. And when we came back, and, and, and maybe you've had this experience as well, when you, when, you, when you fly from here to London and you go into passport control, they, they have kind of citizens and aliens, and you get in the alien line. And their basic attitude at every one of those places is, so why should I let you in? Some countries are more blunt about it, but that's the basic thing. You fly into South Africa... You go into the, the alien line. You, you, we, we flew into Malawi. We went into the alien line, although Malawi doesn't care. We literally kind of had to bribe our way into Zambia. We had to bribe. We had to buy visas. We, we, we paid a guy out on the street who worked for the Zambian government. He took our passports and went in the building in Malawi and then came out with stamped visas, which means the money we gave him didn't go to Zambia. And when we got to the border, we were encouraged to kind of pay to expedite the process. And then we came back into Malawi and we flew back to London. Why should we let you in? And Then you get on a, on a plane and you come home and you land and now the citizen line and you get in the citizen line and they look at your passport and this has probably happened to Penny more than once. They say, welcome home. And after three weeks, home looks pretty good. We're going to reach a finish line because Jesus has taken hold of us and we're going to hear, welcome home. You're finally home. We've never been home. We're like, we're like kids and missionaries who were born overseas, but we've never been home. But it's going to look right. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if it just said, from, from it we have a Savior? But from it we await. We're waiting. I don't want to wait. <laughs> but from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, our physical body, broken, sinful, dying, subject to death, subject to disease, to be like his glorious body, raised, resurrected, glorious, beyond death, beyond disease, beyond anything harmful. And he will transform us, and he will do this, look at this, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The New American Standard says he will do this by the exertion of the power that he has. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. And the earth was was empty and void, formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the, the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. And the Lord said, Let there be light. Pow! There's light. Let there be light, light, 
Let the earth bring forth, the earth brings forth. Let the, let the firmament separate, separates. The only time I know in Scripture where we see God exerting himself is in your transformation. He doesn't treat that as, poof, you're different. He treats that as, as a goal, as an aim, as an objective that he throws himself in. And if, if I can put it this way, anthropomorphizing the spirit who is God, he puts his back into it. He wants your transformation to be so complete. He's not going to simply whisper it. He's going to do it by his power. And it's the power that he has to bring the entire universe into subjection to him. He has the power, which means the might and the authority to cause everything in the universe to line up before him in exactly the way he wants it to line up. And he will exert that power to make you like him. How good is that? That's what it means to have him holding our hand. And so Paul says in in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Why? Because we we can't lose. Because Jesus has taken us by the hand. Because we are waiting for a Savior. And He is going to come back. He is going to transform us. He's taken us by the hand. He won't fail to get us across the finish line. We're not on our own. He's given us His direction, His protection, and His strength. He's given us excellent examples to look for. He's warned us about the bad examples that are out there. He has promised and He is faithful. And He is going to put His back into getting us transformed and glorified. And the only way for Jesus to fail is for him to fail the Father and to fail to obey the will of God. And he can't do that. He will not do that. And so I want to encourage you this morning to stand firm. It's been a busy week. Everybody's had a busy week. Everybody's tired. It's really weird. Almost nobody walks in on Sunday morning full of energy, vibrant, ready to go. I think the biggest reason we do church Sunday morning instead of Sunday night is that Sunday night everybody's going, oh, I got another week to go. And you need a little bit of a you need a little bit of a of a break. We can stand firm because the strength is not our strength. The direction is not our direction. We're not responsible to protect ourselves. We're not responsible to work up the strength to make it. We can press on because Jesus has taken our hand in his. So let's do that. Let's stand firm and trust him. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your grace and graciousness to us. Thank you for your patience and your kindness to us. We have such tremendous need for your goodness and for your strength, for your protection, for your direction. Lord, some are tired. They're they're just weary. Their bodies are weary. Some have tired minds and hearts. Emotions are frayed. We're not yet home. 
We, we live very much out of a suitcase, knowing that nothing really belongs to us, knowing that it's all odd. And it seems that the closer we get to you, the stranger this life seems because it's not home. Would you remind us this week that you have taken us by the hand our faith is in you and that you will not fail to get us home. Lord, if there's anyone who is unclear on that, would you grant them faith and grant them life? Would you persuade them of their sin and the deadliness of that sin and the terrible danger to come and the judgment to come of the perfection of your sacrifice and of your love? If a man like Paul, being who he was with all of his accomplishments and identity, could lay all of those things beside them. Lord, there's nothing that I have that I need to keep. There's nothing that any of us have that we need to hang on to. We can turn away from our sins and repent of them and turn toward you. We can set aside our our so-called advantages, which are not advantages at all. Put our hand in yours and press on. And by your grace, Lord, we will do that. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.